Broadcasting from occupied territories, War the Flea Media, it's the Reality Dysfunction Podcast. A space where a diverse group of brown folk from across the nation explore the political experiences and social future of our Chicano Latino community. Control the narrative, resist the dysfunction. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Ernesto. I'm back again with another uh, episode of the Reality Dysfunction. I'm very excited today to have with me Jose Oliva, who is the uh, campaign director at Heal Food Alliance. Uh, Jose and I have known each other for a number of years now. We met through a mutual acquaintance uh, who's actually been on the Reality Dysfunction a number of times, Dr. Uh, Teofilo Reyes. Uh, but today we're going to talk with Jose about uh, the work that he's doing up there in Chicago and kick it around a little bit more about uh, that whole Latino thing that seems to be coming down hard here in the United States. So, hey, Jose, it's good to have you here. Why don't you, uh, you know, introduce yourself? Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure to be here, uh, Dr. Ernesto, uh, a.k.a. Todd. How are you? <laughs> um, it is absolutely uh, a wild time. And I, and I think just as, as an introduction, I'll tell your listeners that I am currently the campaign's director at the HEAL Food Alliance. Uh, HEAL is an acronym that stands for Health, Environment, Agriculture, and Labor. So we are a multi-sector, uh, multi-racial, uh, multi-generational alliance of organizations that functions at the national level um, to transform our food system, um, which uh, as many of your listeners might know uh, it is completely, completely screwed up um, and has been screwed up for many, many years. Uh, I would uh, venture to say that when this country was founded and it was founded on the premises of um, slave labor, uh, that's when the food system that we currently uh, are reaping the benefits of was born. So our legacy in the food system is in uh, slavery. Our legacy of this food system is also in the exploitation of um, natural resources uh, from a very uh, non-Indigenous, um, from a very Eurocentric perspective. So that's uh, Heal. I'm also the former uh, co-director, co-founder of Another alliance uh, that's called the Food Chain Workers Alliance, uh, which was a national coalition of food worker organizations that represents roughly 400,000 workers, um, farm workers, meat processing, food processing, transportation, warehousing, restaurant, and, and, um, and grocery store workers. So that's me. That's who I am. And I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. So the... The Food Chain Alliance, is that work that, that came out of the work that you did when you were at Rock, the Restaurant Opportunity Centers United? Yeah, yeah. So a little bit of my background and my story. So I can go back to Guatemala. I was uh, born and raised in Guatemala and grew up in the, the midst of the civil war there that was actually triggered because of a CIA coup that took place in the 1950s that overthrew the democratically elected government of Jacobo Arbenz Guzman. Um, and Jacobo Arbenz Guzman was attempting to redistribute land uh, to landless peasants. Um, and that redistribution program was actually run by my grandfather, Mario Gonzalez Orellana. And 
his work was essentially to map out all of the arable land in Guatemala and figure out how that land uh, might be redistributed to folks who didn't have land. And what he found was that about one third of all of the arable land in Guatemala was held by a foreign company, uh, a U.S.-based company uh, that we today know as Chiquita uh, Fruit Company. Back in the day, it was called the United Fruit Company. Uh, and they held about one third of all of the arable land in Guatemala. Um, and when my grandfather gave his report to the president of Guatemala, Jacobo Arbenz, he said, well, we need to nationalize this land uh, in order for us to redistribute it to folks that don't have land. Um, and in doing so, he angered uh, the CEO of Chiquita, whose name was John Foster Dulles, uh, and his brother was Alan Dulles, and Alan Dulles was the head of the CIA. Uh, so it literally was a phone call from one brother to another saying, hey, they are taking our land, even though the Guatemalan government was actually uh, paying Chiquita for the land. They were not taking it from them. They were paying them the market value of the land. Um, but it, it was enough to trigger a CIA coup uh, that overthrew the government of Jacobo Arbenz and established the military dictatorship that went on for over 60 years. Um, and it triggered a civil war. And the civil war is why my family had to leave Guatemala in the first place. Uh, so we came here in 1985, landed in Miami, uh, lived in Miami for about a year until uh, we just couldn't take it anymore because there were uh, a number of uh, threats and uh, other uh, pretty vicious uh, attempts against my parents because they were progressives and they were Guatemalan and they were they were dark skinned they weren't light skinned anti Castro Cubans. <laughs> yeah. um, and so we ended up having to leave Miami and come to Chicago uh, in 86. Um, and so ever since then, we've been here in Chicago. But once we were here, <laughs> I wanted to go to college and I didn't realize that I was undocumented until I graduated high school. Uh, and I realized that I couldn't get any uh, scholarships or Pell Grants or any of that. Um, so I ended up working in the restaurant industry to pay my way for uh, literally with tips that I would get in the restaurant. I would pay for my credit hours um, at the University of Illinois in Chicago. It was working in the restaurant industry that I realized that um, we basically have a fairly discriminatory um, employment system here in the U.S., right? Like you uh, go to any restaurant and you'll see a, a stark difference in the way that front of the house people look versus back of the house people. And when I say look, I'm talking about race, yeah. right? Like front of the house folks tend to be white or lighter skinned folks. Back of the house folks tend to be immigrants um, and predominantly black and indigenous people of color. Um, and, and that got me started uh, thinking about how do we organize in the restaurant industry. Um, we organized the first worker center here in Chicago back in 2001 called the Chicago Interfaith Worker Center. 
Um, that led me to connect with Saru J. Raman and some of the other folks that uh, started the Restaurant Opportunity Center of New York. And through Rack, so, you know, instead of sort of reinventing the wheel here in Chicago, uh, what we decided to do is to sort of uh, partner up with Rock, and uh, we created this national network of uh, worker centers that was called Rock United. Um, which is where Teofilo <laughs> still to this day works. Yeah. Um, and and at Rock, right when when I was there, one of the things that we noticed was that there was this um, growing consumer awareness around food, uh, where people would ask about food uh, in ways that we hadn't seen before. Right? Like, where was this chicken raised, right? Or is this produce organic or that kind of thing? And that made it very. Uh, clear that there was this new brand of consumer that that was actually thinking about some of the qualities of the food, uh, but not a lot of people were making the connection between the qualities of the food and the quality of the work that the workers who were picking, preparing, packing, transporting, and serving that food uh, had. Right? And so that's what led us uh, while we were at Rock, like it, it led us to realize that we needed to develop something that was bigger, that looked at the food system as a system, and that um, brought together the various sectors, not just of food uh, workers, uh, farm workers, processing workers, all of the, the whole supply chain, uh, but also other organizations and, and even unorganized individuals who cared about food from those other angles, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the story, uh, in a nutshell. See, that's, that's an incredible story. And I think that, you know, it's like one of the, the very first things that you started talking about when you're talking about the legacy of food production, you know, in the United States. And, and honestly, I mean, the minute you said that it, I was just like, well, yeah, of course it's, you know, it's rooted in slavery, right? Like we, we expect that. I mean, we do, we expect that people who work land, I mean, do it for very little. I mean, even even to this day, right? And so that the idea though, and I understand what you're saying about this new type of consumer, you know, people are, you know, how is this chicken raised? Or, you know, are these carrots organic and, and all of that? But there still is so little dialogue around working conditions, right? I mean, in some ways it, it does feel like people are more concerned about the chicken that they're going to eat than they are the people who are taking care of the chicken, you know? And I say that as somebody who spent a day working on a chicken farm, it was a horrible day. <laughs> I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was, I was working with my dad in the, in the summertime in Iowa and uh, he was a labor contractor. He used to bring people up from the um, Rio Grande Valley and, and he would like farm them out to uh, different uh, farmers in Iowa. He did that for, for many, many years. He himself had been a migrant worker. We used to go there in the summertime and uh, detassel corn. You know, I'd go with these guys that I was in college with and, you know, we'd be there for a couple of weeks and, you know, we'd make pretty good money, a couple thousand dollars, you know, in, in two weeks, uh, which in the, you know, late eighties was a considerable amount of cash. But yeah, one day we didn't have any corn to detassel. So he, uh, you know, being the good labor contractor that he was, he still had work for us. Uh, so he took us to this gigantic barn and 
He said, yeah, I got a surprise for you guys today. And that's exactly, those were his exact words. I got a surprise for you guys today. And when they rolled the doors open on that barn, the stench, it was like, it was, it was like a solid wall of stench that just rolled out of that place. I swear to God, that barn was a quarter of a mile long. And in, in the middle of it was just a giant wire cage. It's what it looked like, a giant wire cage. And then when you walked in, what you saw was that underneath the, the, the was a giant wire cage that was uh, made up of compartments. And in each side of those compartments, there turned out to be 20 little chickens in each side of the inside, each one of those compartments. And underneath it was this cement river of chicken pee and poop is where the, the, the smell came from. And our job that day was to um, reach into those cages that were over this river of piss and shit and count out 10 little chickens and then put them into another set of cages because the chickens were getting too big to all be in the cage together. That was horrible. It was, yeah. it was horrible. I mean, it, it was horrible to see. And I've eaten a lot of chicken since then. I'm not going to try to pretend like I, you know, like I didn't or I haven't, <laughs> but I mean, it was, it was, it was something to see. I had never, that was the first time that I ever faced the realities of, of factory farming, but, you know, looking at like, you know, the conditions that people were living in and stuff. I mean, it was just, uh, it was incredible. Well, yeah, it makes sense. The legacy of slavery is, is right. what drives our food system today. Yeah, yeah. So if you, if you think about that experience, right. And, and um, multiply that by a hundred, right? yeah. that is what we are living in today. Cause back in the, in the eighties, that was um, sort of an isolated uh, situation. The, the, the industry um, that we know today uh, depends on these CAFOs is what, what folks refer to them as, uh, confined animal feeding operations, C-A-F-O. Um, that's what you're describing. That has uh, multiplied tremendously in the course of the last 30, 40 years. And the impacts of that on climate, uh, for one, right? Uh, because what you're talking about is an uh, inten intensification of greenhouse gases that are uh, emitted uh, in, in chicken plants, maybe not so much, but they also have that same model for uh, pork and for beef. Yeah. Um, and so you're talking about, you know, uh, millions of animals uh, every day uh, defecating and those pools of methane that are gathered are impacting uh, our environment, right, in, in ways that are pretty obvious to, to folks who live nearby, right? If you live, if you are unlucky enough to live near a CAFO, uh, you know exactly the impact that these uh, operations have on, on the environment uh, because you're living it directly. Yeah. Um, obviously, if you work in one of these places, you also, you, you, you have that, that firsthand experience of uh, what it's like. That impact isn't just there right the impact is actually handed down through the supply chain um, because we end up with a product um, meat in particular uh, that is actually raised with a lot of antibiotics the yeah. reason 
that antibiotics are critical to CAFOs is because those animals are not uh, meant to live so uh, close together to each other, right? They're not meant to be packed uh, into those small, small confined spaces. And they often develop infections and they often die as a result. So <laughs> what the industry has done to deal with that is that they have pumped antibiotics into their feed um, and they're eating those antibiotics so that they don't get sick. Um, but then we eat the meat that is pumped with antibiotics and then we develop resistance to those antibiotics. So then when we get an infection and, and we're given antibiotics, our bodies can't fight off the infection anymore because we've literally immunized ourselves against those uh, antibiotics. Right? That's so crazy. It's yeah, it has impacts all around us, right? And that's the thing I think that people don't realize about how the structure of the food system is as destructive as it is um, to everybody and everything. So yeah. you know, I, I mean, when we think about, I mean, when we think about this, and you think about how, you know, I mean, really, what we're doing is treating our our food source as is very is very disposable, right? Like that. That's There's right. no way it's going to end. You know, it's like oil where it's like water, you know, we're just going to keep using it and using it and using it until, you know, it doesn't, uh, I mean, cause it, you know, in our mind, it never runs out, but I mm -hmm. think, you know, specifically, you know, for the Latino community, I mean, how do you see those, the crossover in terms of, mm -hmm. of disposability? I mean, you've spent many oh, years yeah. organizing workers. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, and it's, it is a fundamental issue, right. And in, in in Guatemala, in my hometown of Shela, there are literal recruiters uh, that work for Tyson or Smithfield or JBS who go around talking to people uh, and recruiting them to come to the U.S. to work for those companies. And so, you know, if you are out of work in Guatemala or even if you're in work, but you can imagine yourself making uh, 14, 13, 12 bucks an hour in the United States, you're going to take that. Yeah. <laughs> um, especially if the company's offering to bring you here, right? And, and in an all expenses paid uh, smuggling operation, which is essentially what they do, right? They smuggle people into the United States, take them to those uh, plants, uh, the, the processing plants uh, across the US, and then they have employment when they arrive. And that happens in a couple of different ways, right? Either through legal uh, H-2A programs, right? The uh, agricultural uh, programs, um, visas that, that are given uh, through the USDA and, and these companies apply to those visas and then they bring people from Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, et cetera. Or they actually do it illegally as well, right? They pay smugglers, uh, what are referred to as coyotes, right? They pay the coyotes. The coyotes bring people to the U.S. and then, you know, there's a job waiting for them. Uh, in both of those situations, when people come to the U.S. and they have that job waiting for them in that Smithfield plant in Missouri, they are then trapped in that job. The legal, the H-2A program uh, is literally you are beholden to that company. As long as you are working for that company, you are legally allowed to remain in the U.S. But the moment that company doesn't need you anymore or the moment that you do something that sort of makes the company fire you, 
you're gone. And you're not just fired, you're gone back to your country, right? You're deported. And for undocumented workers that, that get smuggled into the country, uh, it's even worse, right? Because you literally uh, are in constant fear of being deported. Uh, and, and you're told, right? You're told by your supervisors and your managers that you shouldn't rock the boat. You shouldn't try to organize. You shouldn't try to do anything that asserts your rights because that will alert the authorities and, and you don't want the authorities to, to be alerted of your presence. Uh, and, you know, folks don't recognize uh, that in this country, there are some separations between, let's say the Department of Labor and ICE, right? Immigration Customs Enforcement, where you can file a, a Department of Labor uh, complaint and you're protected by the Department of Labor uh, against ICE action. At least theoretically, <laughs> you're protected. During the Trump years, that was gone, right? Like yeah. there, there was real, no real protection at all. And if you file the complaint with DOL, you could easily be deported. Theoretically, we're, we're uh, back to a place where DOL will protect you if you file a complaint as long as that investigation is ongoing from ICE action or from, from deportation in general. But yeah, so, so there's layers, right? There's that layer of sort of the fear of being deported and the fear of uh, other legal action against you because you're undocumented uh, or if you're an H-2A worker of just being removed legally from the country. And then there's another layer, which is that in many of the plants where workers are coming to this country to work in, you end up working in a minority status. In other words, you are one small group of folks, right? If you're a Mexican or if you're a Guatemalan or if you're Honduran national, there's, you know, a handful of others or maybe, you know, depending on the size of the plant, up to maybe, you know, a dozen or so others from your national origin group. And then there's, you know, hundreds of other folks, right? And uh, one plant in Missouri in particular um, that we work with, uh, a Smithfield plant, there is Ethiopian refugees, there are Eritrean refugees, there are Mexican immigrants, Guatemalan immigrants, uh, there are folks from the Middle East, there are folks from Eastern Europe, uh, and then there's native-born workers as well. And they're all mixed together. Right? So there's seven groups, at least seven groups of folks that are all mixed together. Uh, and there's a very open uh, divide and conquer strategy by the employer, right? Yeah. Where they literally will tell some workers, look, these guys work harder than you. And yeah. they're just trying to make you look bad, right? Or these other guys, oh, they're lazy. Like, you know, you, you, why do you, why do, why should you be putting up with that, right? Like we should have more people like you working here, that kind of thing. Um, and it creates resentment and it creates division, uh, even between, you know, the quote unquote Latinos, right? Like the, the, that doesn't exist in national origin groups, right? Like if I'm Guatemalan, um, yeah, I'm going to understand Mexicans and Hondurans, right? I'm going to understand what they're saying, but I don't really think of myself as one of that, right? right. I'm Guatemalan. I, I'm with my crew of Guatemalans. Um, that's who my people are. Uh, and, and same thing with Mexicans, same thing with Hondurans, right? And so, um, there's a there's a larger sort of uh, system at play in dividing and conquering people um, that actually prevents those folks from thinking of themselves as Latino or 
thinking of themselves as people of color, right? right? Like yeah. that's that's a whole nother a whole nother layer of uh, impediments, and both both mentally uh, and culturally for people from Latin America to think of themselves as people of color, right? Like they oftentimes don't think of themselves that way, um, especially if you come from the dominant group. Uh, in your country, right? If you're a Latino in Guatemala, Latino is a mixed race person like myself, right? Then you're not a person of color. You're you're just a regular Guatemalan, right? And then there's the the Indians, Mayan people who actually are the majority in Guatemala. They're they're more than sixty percent of the overall population, but they are uh, a minority status group, even if they are the majority. It's similar to South Africa, right? And so you don't think of yourself as a person of color. They are the people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's shocking when you come to this country and suddenly you're a person of color. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like that's a it's a it's a mind twist for a lot of folks. So there there is a, a, just a phenomenal amount of exploitation that's going on. And mm-hmm. I mean, the, the government, the United States government is is clearly I mean, I don't even they're barely trying to hide the fact that they're talking out of both sides of their mouth when it comes to immigration and it comes to work and and all this other kind of stuff, particularly because of programs like H2A. Right. My question is, because this is this is also something that I've been I've spent a lot of time thinking about over the last several years is how how much the. I don't, I don't, I hate to use the word documented because like, I mean, so many of us, it's not even about being documented. I mean, I'm a, a citizen of the United States, right? My, my, my father was a citizen of the United States. All my kids are citizens of the United States. I mean, we're, we're not documented. We were born here, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, but, but this is, this is my point is my point isn't to make that distinction. <laughs> my point is to say this, what, what can those of us who don't have any fear of of being deported, right? How how is it that we engage that critical mass of people? Because you're talking, you know, about 40, 50 million people who were born here, right? Who are who are citizens. And yet, you know, we see these abuses happening. And then it's even like these the kids, you know, these poor children you know who are spending their childhood incarcerated you know in these prisons and everybody's all like oh you know biden's gonna let them out i never thought for one second that biden was gonna let anybody out of jail i don't think that dude (laughs) in his entire career has let anybody out of jail but he's put a lot of people in jail you know Mm -hmm. and so but but my question is from an organizing standpoint from a mobilizing standpoint you know what is it going to take to get I mean, to get the rest of these guys off their ass to do something. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, I think we could solve the immigration problem in the United States if we could even act in concert with each other a fraction. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's there's uh, two answers to that question. That's a brilliant question, by the way. One of them, and, and I was starting to sort of hint at that and and my last uh, statement would, you know, unification, right? Understanding us uh, as a group of people that have common interests because not just because we have a common uh, ancestry or because we have common roots of the problems that we're facing, 
but because we identified a, a common solution, right? So just as an example, there are, before the pandemic hit, there were 21 and a half million people that were working in the food system. It was the largest private sector employer in the country by far, right? Bigger than healthcare. <laughs> and of those 21 and a half million, uh, the vast majority were people of color. Uh, and we were people of color because not, not just people of color from Latin American descent or, or uh, uh, Caribbean descent, right? But we were people of color from uh, all, all parts of the global South and um, from uh, native uh, communities here in the United States, right? And so the, the root causes that created the poverty in our communities uh, are the same. It's disinvestment in those communities. Uh, it is a purposeful uh, identification of those communities as the other. And then policies at the, at the federal, state, and local level aimed at incarcerating and impoverishing those communities, uh, purposeful policies, right? Like these are not uh, accidental policies. These are policies that were set in place during slavery, post-slavery, and, and into modern day federal, state, and local. So to me, that, that is the critical first step, right? Identifying how we are all connected, what are some of the ways that we could act together. One clear way is, is understanding our community as a larger community of people of color uh, and understanding that we have these mutual self-interests and that we could act that on those self-interests, not just by voting for people who support those interests, right? I think there's an old, it's sort of an old entire diatribe that uh, we can vote people in and we can vote people out with our, with our power. Yeah. Uh, yeah, great. That's, that's good. But we should be the ones voting ourselves, in, right? Like we right. should be the ones getting ourselves ready to take power by training ourselves, right? So at HEAL, we have this thing called the School of Political Leadership. Uh, the School of Political Leadership is intended to give people the skills that they need in order to run for office, right? And it's pretty basic and simple if you think about it in terms of, I am rooted in my community and I'm going to be accountable to my community. Um, but it's also an extremely difficult hill to climb because there's all of these impediments, there's all these obstacles that have been set up specifically to keep us from running for office, right? And so I think that's what we're trying to do at HEAL is get people prepared, get them ready, identifying those obstacles, removing those obstacles to the best that we can, right? There's obviously some obstacles that are so big that we're barely scratching at the surface right now. But I think that's one that's one answer to your question. And I think the other answer to it is nothing happens. You know, it's, it's the old adage of uh, nothing happens uh, without us organizing, without having power. Right. And the power that we need to develop isn't just in the workplace. The power that we need to develop isn't just in a particular sector in the community, for instance, uh, the power is really across the board, right? right. The only way that we're going to be able to develop that kind of power um, is if we are organizing, if we are investing 
in institutions that are organizing people, that are bringing people together around common purposes. You know, one thing that I think uh, gets me uh, riled up is a lot of talk about organizing with no political vision, right? So uh, organizing isn't just about bringing people together so that you can have cleaner streets, right? Or so that you can, you know, quote unquote, get rid of crime in your neighborhood. Right. Um, that's not real organizing, right? Like you call that whatever you want to call it, but it's not organizing. Organizing means you have to have a vision, right? You, if you are bringing people together around the common issue in your community, fine, but that common issue shouldn't be the purpose you're organizing. It should be a vehicle to something bigger, right? And that something bigger is political vision that transforms society. That's not just about some, you know, tweaking around the edges, right? Reform uh, this particular thing versus that other thing, right? It's really about transforming yeah. um, all of society. So, some, sometime yeah. in, in the last 30 years, that, that shift happened. In, in it, it happened gradually. But I, I, I face that with, with my students all the time. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm just like, the, what's, your, what's your goal here? You know, mm -hmm. and I mean, they're like, well, we all, we just have to get together. And I'm like, that's mm -hmm. not a goal. I'm like, we are literally all together right now in this room. <laughs> not, not, to, and I tell them, I'm not trying to make fun of what you just said, but we are, <laughs> you know, so I mean, that's, that's right. you know, I mean, if, I mean, are we building organization? I agree with what you just said. I mean, I feel like if we're not building organization for some sort of of a stated or understood political goal and not implicitly understood, but explicitly understood, right. That's, then we're not engaged in organizing. We are engaged in, yeah, we're not even engaged in activism. I mean, that's, that's neighborhood like unification. Building. What's that? <laughs> I said, it's club building. You it's build club, club building. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're the Latino club, you know, or we're the Chicano club, you know, and it's just like, mm, or we're a car club. We build cars. You know, I mean, even they got more, they have more of a sense sometimes of what it is that they're doing. So yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting, man. I, I have these last several years just spent so much time thinking about it, you know, and mm -hmm. just, um, and really, you know, having that conversation with people and wondering where the, um, and really wondering where the pressure point is, because I, I, I don't believe that there, there aren't cleavages that could be exploited in terms of, you know, and I, and I mean, for anyone that's listening, I'm, I'm talking, you know, nonviolent direct action, you know what I'm saying? But the, yeah. I just don't believe that there's, that there's not something that people yeah, could, could do, you know, but it, I know that the, the problem seems so insurmountable because it's so huge, but there's so many of us that I think that it, it evens out, you know, but the question is, is how do you, how do you mobilize, you know, that yeah. many people? No, that's right. That's right. And, and it, there's also, you know, I, I, again, hinted at this earlier, right. But there are differences that are exploited by the other side that we need to overcome first. Yeah. Right. So these, these differentiations, uh, around national origin, around race, around language, around all of these these uh, critical components that, uh, not to say that they're insignificant, but they are literally hurting us more than they are helping us, right? Yeah. And uh, to the extent that we know that 
there's a common root cause to all of our mutual problems um, and that we know that our liberation is bound together to each other, um, then we should be moving as one, right? Uh, but we're not, and we're not oftentimes because we let um, a whole myriad of differences uh, get in the middle of uh, our own self-interest of right. liberation. Yeah. Um, and that, that I think, is the, the biggest thing to overcome. I do, I, you know, say what you will about the, the uh, current generation uh, of, of activists and organizers that are, that are coming out. I do notice that there is a, uh, the, the pendulum is swinging in the right direction. I think that's true uh, also. Yeah. Right. I, I see a lot more understanding of systems, right. A lot less focus on like minutia and specific issues. Right. But, but understanding the systems that are underneath, I see a lot more understanding uh, on transformation, less on transaction. Uh, and I also see a lot more understanding on sort of root causes versus the effects, right? Like yes. the, the, the causes of the effect uh, have not always been understood, right? But yeah. I do think that this generation has a handle on all three of those very critical components. And, yeah. and uh, I haven't seen that in a long time. And I haven't I, seen that since we were kids. Well, I, th I think that's true. I, I do. And I think that, I think also to, just to build off what you said, I think that we are actually having a real conversation about uh, colonialism and settler colonialism and decolonization in this country right now. And it, and it may not be a viral conversation, but it is a conversation that is, that is definitely taking place in our communities um, in a way, I mean, like back in the in the late 80s or 90s, you know, uh, when I was working for the farm workers, I think that's when I first met you was like mm -hmm. through Lori yeah. and, and Telfilo. When I would come over to Chicago, we would come over from Detroit and, you know, we were working for the United Farm Workers. I mean, there was a there was a knot of people who were talking about decolonization at that point, you know, or settler colonialism. And it was a it was a small group of people, you know, but that conversation has expanded Uh you know, dramatically. And I think you're right about the, especially the transformation part in terms of uh, that, 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 I mean, you can see it even in um, the way that people approach their sexuality or their gender, you know, I mean, it's uh, mm -hmm. it, the, the transformation piece is, is definitely there. And it's a lot, I think a lot less transactional. Well, sometimes it's very much not transactional. Because people are just like, uh-uh. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> they're, that's they're purposely not transactional. So, yeah. Wow. That's, yeah. I think that's really interesting. Oh, this has been a good conversation, man. I had, there's, you know, I really love talking to people because, you know, it's just amazing sometimes, like when you hear people talk, how it like kicks things off in your head, you know, and you're like, yeah, that's right. I never, I never really thought about it that way, but yeah. Yeah. That's good. Um, I'm glad I said at least one smart thing on your show. <laughs> no, you that's, said a whole bunch good. of smart things, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, what's what's uh what's next? What's what's going on? What what are your guys' big campaigns for the future? Yeah, 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 yeah. So we are currently working on a couple of big things. Uh, one of them we were calling the Ewok campaign, the Essential Workers Organizing Campaign. Um, and it was centered around uh, food workers during the pandemic, um, 
you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we had massive unemployment, uh, particularly in the restaurant industry. Um, our estimates was that over 70% of uh, workers in the industry were unemployed. Um, so there was a lot, and I'm sure Teofilo has talked uh, a little bit about this, but there was a lot of uh, effort around building these um, relief funds, like the one that Rock United put together and others. Uh, and then beginning around March uh, or April of last year, there was a slew of wildcat strikes in the meatpacking sector yep. that then culminated in this executive order by Trump uh, on April 27th that yep. uh, essentially forced everybody back to work. And, you know, there's a lot of legal analysis around whether that executive order was even legal, but the impact that it had is undeniable. And that is that it like it really scared everyone especially uh, uh, worker, immigrant workers, right? It yeah. scared them enough to feel like, oh, we better go back to work, um, right? Otherwise, there's going to be some kind of executive action. Um, and, and then that created the conditions for um, a lot of support from a lot of ally organizations. We, we helped organize um, over 200 um, big national um, food, environmental, health, other organizations that applied a lot of pressure to the, the companies, Tyson, Smithfield, uh, all of the big uh, meatpacking producers. We started talking to their investors, uh, sort of telling them that they were basically at risk, right? That, that if workers began to die in those plants, that they could be held liable for those uh, for those deaths. Yeah. Um, and so we were um, pretty successful in getting um, all of the large meatpacking companies to implement a, a PPE policy, protective equipment uh, policy for workers. Um, we got them to uh, create uh, sick leave policies in a lot of places where they didn't exist before. Um, cleanup policies, uh, social distancing, that kind of thing. Um, what we, we were not successful in doing is in getting them to slow down the lines, uh, mm-hmm. which is actually really what uh, is critical in this moment, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, in poultry, for instance, we have a line speed that is ridiculous. It's 120 birds per minute. Uh, so if you can imagine if you're uh, working on a line uh, in the poultry plant, and your job is to, to work the wings, right? The wings of the chicken. That means you have to make two motions to cut one wing uh, and, and, and then another from each bird. Yeah. Um, and you, you have to do that motion 120 times every minute. Uh, every minute. <laughs> so it is an insane how's that, how's that amount. Possible? Of, I mean, that doesn't oh, seem like. It's, it's possible. It's possible. You're just constantly, constantly cutting. So uh, and the birds and the birds are stopping in front of you for less than a fraction of a second. It's insane. And 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 that's the USDA regulation, right? That's that's what the regulation that the federal government has issued to poultry producers, uh, similar in, in, in pork, similar in beef. Obviously, those animals are a lot a lot bigger, so it can't be that fast. Um, but it's a similar uh, an equivalent. Um, line speed. 
Um, and so, so a lot of our focus now on EWOC is really to get the emergency temporary standard that OSHA is about to put out um, to include line speed uh, and yeah. to really look at the issue of line speed as something that is critical to the health and the well-being of workers um, despite or beyond the vaccination rate, right? Like people might be vaccinated, fine, that's great. The rates might be down and, and the pandemic might be winding down, great. But if to the extent that we don't want uh, the variants to become new viruses, uh, we need to make sure that we have uh, some protections that are set up in our food system so that that doesn't uh, actually propagate the creation of uh, new variants uh, of, of the coronavirus. Then there's another campaign that we're working on called the Real Meals Campaign. Uh, in the Real Meals Campaign, we're focused on Airmark, uh, Sodexo, and Compass Group. Mm -hmm. And those are the three large food service providers uh, that um, control over 60% of the entire food service market. Uh, they control over 80% of the higher education food yep. service market. Yep. Uh, and so th this campaign is largely driven by students uh, in colleges and universities all over the country. And it's really about divesting their school's money from these large uh, corporations uh, and going to a more self-operating model uh, that actually is uh, going to invest that money in their own regional food system uh, and that prioritizes Black and Indigenous people of color businesses. And that's really um, a part of the, the campaign that uh, has really taken root in campuses all over the U.S. Uh, has been this uh, divesting from prison uh, slave labor. Because all three of these companies, and especially Aramark, in, invests heavily in prison slave labor. Yep. Right? These are folks in prisons all over the, the country who are literally producing the food that is served in college cafeterias all over the country. Right? Um, so that's the, the, the other part of our work. Um, and then the third thing, and this is uh, also really exciting, is this, this emerging um, procurement work that we're calling Good Food Communities. Um, you know, good, there's, a, there's a way for us to think about how we collectively are purchasing food um, in school districts and other public institutions all over the country. Uh, so for instance, here in Chicago, the Chicago Public Schools purchases about $300 million worth of food every year. Um, that food had no criteria before uh, Good Food Communities came on the scene. It was literally just, let's get the cheapest food we could find uh, and, and put it on cafeterias uh, for, for kids to eat all over the city. And what we did is we introduced um, a process for us to have five value categories around human health, environmental sustainability, animal welfare, local economies, and labor, of course, uh, and that the, the school district has to consider all five of these whenever they are securing contracts with various uh, vendors. Um, and they don't get to pick and choose which one of the five they wanna, <laughs> they wanna pick, you know, they, they, they want to excel in. Uh, they have to meet a baseline for all five of them, right? So in the labor value category, 
uh, you have to at the very least be uh, abiding by uh, minimum wage, uh, overtime, child labor, um, em employment discrimination, health and safety laws uh, at the very basic, right? At the very basic minimum. And I know that sounds like it's not much, but uh, well, for those does, of you, you know, who have sounds... worked in the food system, <laughs> yeah, you don't always make minimum wage, right? Yeah. You don't always uh, have protections around the discrimination and sexual harassment and things like that. So that's right. um, anyway, so that that's those are the, the three um, major campaigns that we're engaged in at the moment. Okay. All right. Well, I, we're we're right about at our time. Man, this has been a great conversation. I, 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 I'm hoping that, you know, we can set up another time where we can get uh, you and Teo and some other people back on here to uh, really, you know, have a um, kind of a That'd more. Yeah, I think a lot of fun. Oh, a lot of fun. And, you know, and, and maybe a, a, a wider conversation, too, about, you know, about food production and about organizing in general. I mean, this is uh, these campaigns are amazing. And it's uh, the work that you guys do up there is is incredible. I'll say it, re oh, it really is. You. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Ernesto, and I really appreciate your your work too, and and you inviting me over to the to the podcast. This has been really great and and a lot of fun for sure. And absolutely, count on me for any future conversations. I'd love to be part of it. All right, that's that'll be that'll be exciting. This is the reality dysfunction.